Let's do it. You ready? Yeah. Arizona. Yeah, you know it, Roy. You know it. Welcome to a Saturday night right here in Phoenix, Arizona. Somewhere off U.S. Highway 70, turning the wrong way on Bryce Eden Road, in the middle of the long and wide Gila River Valley, I had Karen worried. Yeah, this is it. I was practically giddy by this point. We were 180 miles into our journey to Bonita Springs Vineyard, near Wilcox, 250 miles from home. I had vaguely mentioned wanting to stop to Karen, but I knew she couldn't guess what was in store. The narrow, heavily rutted and washed-out farm road on which we were driving lay between two cotton fields, just turning white with the first fluffs of the season. I steered the truck between ruts and large holes, and at one point while crossing a broken culvert, the truck performed a gymnastic maneuver involving only three wheels. As we crawled closer to the imposing yet unimpressive mud hill that was our destination, only a mile from the highway, my mood vacillated between concern for my truck's well-being and the feeling you get when you're opening presents on Christmas morning. Karen had yet to share my enthusiasm. Nearly 500 years ago, a Spanish friar named Marcos de Niza was sent by his king to explore northern Mexico and what is now southern Arizona. In 1539, 70 years before the first English settlement at Jamestown, Fray Marcos rode north from Culiacán. After almost 600 miles, his party had only reached the top of the Gulf of California. Here I knew the coast turned towards the west, very quickly. Up until the first uninhabited stretch I passed, always the coast kept going north. Not far from Rocky Point, Deniza and his party turned east and headed inland. They picked up the current-day San Pedro River, then known by its Nahuatl name, Nashpa, and followed it north to the valley of the modern-day Sierra Vista. He describes this part of the journey as, So full of people and so full of food you could feed three hundred horses. It is very lush, like a vineyard, every half-league and every quarter-league a new neighborhood, and in every village tales of a wealthy kingdom in the north, called Cibula. As Fray Marcos moved from village to village, contacting new and distinct native groups, he collected more and more information on a kingdom far to the north, called Cibula. He met people who made the 30-day journey from northern Mexico to Cibula once a year to earn a living. They went to trade goods or labor for Cibula's main trade currency, a new type of animal that piqued Marcos's curiosity. Aquí en este valle. Me trajeron un cuero, tanto y medio mayor que de una gran vaca, y me dijeron Here in this valley, they brought me an animal hide, one and a half times as large as a big cow. And they say there are many such animals in this land. The color of the hide is like a goat, and the hair is longer than a finger. The many villages of the Zuni in western New Mexico acted as major trade hubs between the Plains Indians from the east of the Rockies and the southwestern cultures from the Sonoran Desert southward. Marcos was told that the Lord of the Seven Cities lived in one of them, Ahakus, and that he had other men rule the six other cities in his stead. What Marcos called a kingdom, after the feudal vassalage common in Europe, was actually a council or trade guild with the cities ruled by consensus. The cities weren't necessarily united under a common leader. Marcos wrote more and more of the promise of Cibola, 
The Coronado expedition would later mistakenly infer from these reports that Cibola was a city of gold and gems on the level of the Aztec capital at Tenochtitlan. This misunderstanding led to the embarrassment of a protesting Fray Marcos upon returning to Cibola with Coronado. The image of wealth Coronado had built up in his imagination didn't match what Marcos had literally said in his reports, and Marcos was ostracized for being a liar. This reputation is not deserved, as Marcos's own reports never explicitly described such wealth. We're talking about Fray Marcos for a reason, but this episode isn't solely about his journey, not to mention the larger Coronado expedition that Marcos's reports of riches inspired. This story isn't solely about the native peoples of southern Arizona and northern Mexico, nor of the Zuni Pueblos, 15 mountainous days to the northeast. It's not only about the white settlers of the Gila Valley that now inhabit the area. This story is about a forgotten pile of mud. Red Knolls has featured prominently as a backdrop to the stories of the peoples of the surrounding valley over the millennia. It stands out of place along the Gila River Valley in eastern Arizona near Safford. It has stood for countless centuries past, the very last remnant of a large prehistoric lake bed, melting away grain by grain with every monsoon rain. It will only be a few more eons until the 12-story tall natural fortress that looms over the farmland of the wide valley succumbs to the elements and melts away completely. Deeply creviced, riddled with window-like caves and faced with natural mud columns, it evokes the canyon temple ruins of Petra from Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. It stands over 130 feet tall, and its natural semicircular amphitheater is, is wider than either the Veterans Memorial Coliseum at the state fairgrounds or America West Arena downtown, currently called Talking Stick Arena. Fray Marcos would go on to Cibola in the summer of 1539, finally reaching the city but turning back without entering it. His servant, Estebanico, a black moor from the south of Spain, was sent ahead to Cibola. Estebanico, who until reaching Cibola had been extremely popular with the natives, even going so far as to be offered women and amassing a following of 50 or more followers, ended up unwittingly offending the leader of Cibola with what is thought to have been, in their culture, a symbol of death, and was killed as an evil omen. Marcos returned to Culiacán, and in his report stated, The population of Cibola is so great as to match Mexico City, and that he wanted to enter the city but refrained out of fear of being killed, as was Estebanico. Marcos did not fear for his own life in this situation, for his faith was solid. He did not want to provide the Spanish with a reason to exterminate the native population. One thing that is conspicuously missing from Marcos's Relacion that is present in his later recountings is a place he names Chichiltecale. In Nahuatl, the lingua franca of the Mesoamerican and southwestern tribes, Chichiltecale means Big Red House. During Coronado's expedition the following year, Castaneda's Relacion of the expedition stated that Marcos described the Red House as a camping spot along the route near the Rio Gila, but this description was problematic for many reasons. 1. The Coronado expedition had already diverged from Marcos's path by the time they reached southern Arizona, and so finding the same big red house would be impossible. 2. Because the Nahuatl phrase Chichiltecale was not a proper noun to the natives who used it to describe a place, it was like saying, you know, the big house over there by the cottonwood tree, and not the White House, where the president lives. This makes the phrase unhelpful when asking other natives about the red house, because there were hundreds of red houses throughout that region. And three, Melchior Diaz was sent up to the Rio Tizon, Colorado, to the Gila, and made it all the way past the future site of Phoenix to Casa Grande, which is a big house, but isn't red. There are at least three possible locations of Chichiltecale of Fray Marcos's report. I believe that Red Knolls was Marcos's. 
It lies directly on his path over the mountains between the Rio Nespa and the Rio Gila. Diaz's was Casa Grande, and Coronado's was a large dwelling near Wilcox, possibly part of a ruined complex called Coikendal. Additionally, there is a modern-day Chichilta, New Mexico, near the site of the Hawica ruins, one of the fabled seven cities of Shibula. In a way, each of the Spaniards found their own Chichiltecale. Red Knolls was host to a native village before the arrival of the Spaniards, and to this day a complex agricultural system can be seen on the shoulders of the mountain across the river from Red Knolls. Rocks from the hillside were laced together in polygonal lanes, which caught and concentrated scant rainfall to grow agave plants for food and fiber. Check out our website, arizona.fyi slash rednolls. That's R-E-D-K-N-O-L-L-S, for satellite photos of these ancient fields. After the Spaniards arrived, and for hundreds of years until the mid-19th century, they employed various forms of vassalage in control of the natives of New Spain, the most egregious of which was known as the encomienda system, a grant by the Spanish crown to Spanish colonists in the Americas, conferring the right to demand tribute and forced labor from the Indian inhabitants of an area. After the Mexican War for Independence, the newly established Mexican government continued exploiting native labor. The eventual acquisition of the area as a spoil of war by the United States improved relations for a few scant decades until friction with the native populations proved too much. After 400 years of slavery and exploitation by Spain and Mexico, the U.S. would begin relegating the native populations to reservations to languish in poverty. For a time, the natural fortress lay in ruin, its peoples removed, its columned walls silent. The natural amphitheater would first be used again by Anglo settlers as a perfect corral to hold cattle and as a shelter from the valley winds. The land around Red Knolls became ranch land, and later farmland, and upon the arrival of Mormon settlers who named it Eden, after a town of the same name in Utah, it was incorporated into Graham County. In the 1920s, the Knolls became popular as a venue for Easter pageants and shows put on by the Eastern Arizona College and Gila College in nearby Safford. Every year, for many decades, the Knolls played host to elaborate sets and costumed performers, and thousands of people on crisp spring evenings, under the stars and surrounded by natural beauty. In 1927, Universal Pictures completed filming exterior scenes for what at the time was known as Thunderhoof, but was released as Wild Beauty, 1927. Using Red Knolls as backdrop, 36 men and 4 women were involved in the scenes, as well as more than a thousand horses. A soldier returns home from World War I with a beautiful black horse that he saved on the battlefield and names Thunderhoof. He enters the horse in a local race, hoping to win enough to save the family ranch of the girl he loves. However, the crooks are intent on taking the ranch, manage to capture a notorious wild horse and enter it in the same race, believing that it can beat Thunderhoof and thereby ensure that they are able to take the ranch. Among the pageants and plays performed against the desert fortress walls, were the House of Rimmon, 1930, a Ben-Hur-style biblical epic featuring Roman centurion costumes. The Prince of Egypt, in 1933, complete with a giant sphinx head sculpture. The Desert Song, in 1935, an operetta, including scenes depicting Arabians, French army officials, and native Moroccan tribes. After the pageants of the 30s, Red Knolls was used for sunrise services on Easter in the 50s, for Mormon plays in the 60s, a venue for firework celebrations in the 80s, Red Knolls disappears from the papers after 1988, and today is used as an illegal dumping ground for construction supplies and as a party spot for teenagers from Safford. Karen stared at me incredulously from the passenger seat. I parked the truck at the mouth of the Crescent and dismounted, 
I stepped over a rusty home air duct, a pile of fiberglass insulation, carefully picked a line over thousands of rusty nails covering the whole of the amphitheater. The air trembled heavy with the buzzing of a million bees from some black cave amongst the columns at the back of the circle. Karen caught up and we stood at the exact center of the amphitheater. It was, in a word, otherworldly. The organic alien mud columns and monochrome palette, the insidious buzzing of gargantuan insects, the nearly perfect geometry and incredible acoustic properties combined to impart the feeling of standing on the shores of a primordial sea a billion light years away. Conquistadores, the seventh yearly pageant in 1934, was written by a Gila Valley resident and was attended by almost 3,000 people. It was described in the papers as such a story is admirably adapted to the inspiring setting to be found at the outdoor auditorium, and Arizona's heritage of the period represented makes the play especially timely and fitting. I find these incredibly apt words, considering the pageant was to be performed in the embrace of Marcos Deniza's Chichiltecali. I'd like to thank you all for listening to another episode of Arizona.FYI. Check out our website at Arizona.FYI for some extra content and ways to reach us. And if you'd like to send us feedback, corrections, or suggestions, please do so by emailing mail at arizona.fyi. Thanks for listening, and remember while you're out there exploring our state, don't forget to bring us along.